Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time here, welcome back. I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli. This is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days. And this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. I hope you surely came today not just to be entertained or to hear some good stories. I hope you surely came today to hear the Word of God and the truths of the things of God and to learn how to follow the Lord more and learn how to, or begin to follow the Lord or, or learn some more, some new things about God today because, you know, we, we teach the truth of God's Word here. So anyway, if you guys want, please join me in a word of prayer. We always ask God to bless our sermon because we know that the Word says that only by the Holy Spirit of God can anyone understand the things of God. And so we know that by our flesh we can't understand the things of God. So let's ask God to bless our message and help us understand. And then not only understand, but help us to understand and then do the things of the Word of God. Lord, we, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you, Lord God, for your great love for mankind, Lord God, your undying love, your, wow, Lord, your long-suffering love toward mankind, God. Lord, your word says that you're long-suffering toward us, Lord, not willing that anyone should perish, God. And that would be anyone and everyone all over the world, God. For Paul backs it up and speaking to Timothy in one of his epistles to him, Lord, that you desire all men to be saved when you were commending through Paul to Timothy and through all to all believers, Lord, that we pray for all people because your desire is that all people come to be saved. Your love never ceases to amaze me, Lord, as even while we are yet sinners, while we were, still are, Lord, you, you, you love us and you gave your only begotten Son for us, Lord God. Thank you. We uh, ask today, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word, help us understand your, your, these words, this message, Lord, I pray that we would make changes to our lives, Lord God. Uh, the things that you tell us to do, Lord, I, I pray if we're not doing them or if we're doing them weekly, in, in a weak way, I should say, that you would help us be strong in them or help us to start doing them. Thank you, Lord God. Pray, Lord, for everybody that's listening now or that'll listen forever until Christ comes back, Lord, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word also. We thank you, and we love you, and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. We will be in Acts chapter 23 today. We're going to finish out the chapter, kind of very ironic, because last week I took a little over an hour just to teach on one verse. Today we have most of the chapter, and I believe that you'll be surprised that we'll actually get through this whole sermon as well in around an hour. That's usually what God has given me to teach on, about an hour every single Sunday. The title of our sermon today, very simple one, Foiled Plans and Royal Treatment. Interesting title. We're going to be Acts 23. We're going to read verses 12 through 35, again, to finish out the chapter, and then I'll teach on them. So if you guys want to join me, please, I can read along, or you can just listen along, whichever you'd like. Verse 12 says this, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggested the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further 
inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, coming out with troops. I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason why they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the men, I I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to stand before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipyrus. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Last week, okay, we read of the road of suffering that Paul was on, remember. And how, remember, he was down and out and depressed and bummed out because of it. Because we know that, because Christ comes in Acts 23 and 11, he says, Hey, Paul, be of good cheer. Nobody says to anybody, be of good cheer, if they're not in a bad mood. In that message, Christ also did something amazing for Paul. He lifted him up. He lifted him out of the ashes, Acts 23 11. Down and out, depressed, the Lord stands by him and says, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. In other words, Christ tells him, hey, Paul, I'm here for you. Cheer up. I know you're down right now, but cheer up. I'm with you. Hey, you're still on my path, and I'm not done with you yet. I'm sure those words were exactly what Paul needed to hear then, and I'm exactly sure that these words were what Paul needed for the further road, his future road that was coming upon him, because his situation does not get any better as we continue to read on. Look at verses 12 through 16 again. I'm just going to comment on comment on them as we go because there's a bigger main whole picture to this whole sermon. It's just some things we we need to learn along the way. Verses 12 through 16, a plot and an evil scheme against Paul. And the Bible says, and when it was day, 
Now remember, that was the night before that Christ came to Paul, so this would be the day after Jesus comes to Paul with his encouraging message. It says, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath. What do we know that to be? An oath is another word for vow. So, of course, they, they, they said, we, we came together and we're going to vow, which is a, an unbreakable thing for a Jew to do, saying that we would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That was, what, that was what verse 12 just told us. Now, remember, Jews took vows pretty seriously, and we know that by a man named Jephthah in the Old Testament. He had made a vow that he was going to go out and fight some, some, some non-Jewish people, people, some enemies of the Jews, and, you know, Lord, if you give me the victory, then I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice to you the first thing that walks out my door. And of course, we know, if you know your Old Testament, Jephthah actually sacrificed his own daughter, who was the first one that walked out of his door. So he, they were pretty serious taking vows as he went ahead and sacrificed his daughter, his own flesh and blood, to the Lord because of his stupid vow that, that he took before the Lord. Now, these guys here must have really hated Paul. You really have to hate somebody in order to literally, what they did here is they literally put their lives on the line, right? Saying, hey, we'll neither eat nor drink until we've killed this man. I mean, that's some pretty nutty stuff. That, that, that's radical, radical hatred right there. Because they were basically saying, if we don't kill him, we're going to die. I mean, you know, you got to be seriously have a lot of hatred for somebody in order to put your life on the line in order to say, I'm going to kill somebody else. Uh, just think about that idea, a vow to either neither eat nor drink until you've killed someone. That's just nuts, right? Just how many nuts were there, though, that made this stupid vow like Jephthah did, verse 13, now, there were more than 40, so we're just going to call them from now on, 40 plus. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. 40 plus stupid nuts, I'll add, right? Uh, look at what these nuts do, verse 14. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will either neither eat nothing until we have killed Paul. First, it's important to note there that they admit to the highest Jewish uh, authority in the whole land that they've taken this vow. What did they just do to themselves? Well, they absolutely, they were already by their own Jewish word and, and by the, as highly as Jews took vows and oaths, as, high, as highly as they thought of them, they then now just basically 1,000% bound themselves to the fact of it's either us or Paul. We're either going to kill him or we're going to die because now they've just made their vow known to the highest Jewish authority in the whole land. So they weren't just nuts. They were stupid nuts. That's just crazy. Their scheme, though, and I could see how they felt pretty confident. Uh, their scheme is pretty brilliant and very impressive. It's evil, of course, but their scheme is really good from a human perspective. Look at verse 15. He said, they say, now, now you, therefore, together with the council, suggested the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes. 
Really, really, really brilliant. Let's talk about why. These are the things that God shows me. The 40 plus nuts here wanted the religious Jews to go to the Roman commander and ask to have another meeting with Paul. And again, it would have been under the supervision of the commander and his troops. This is the first huge thing. This idea, of course, would have been just what the commander wanted to know. He would have, he would have loved, they were coming to him, hey, we want to, you know what, we want another meeting, we want to inquire of him, we want to see what's going on. They weren't aggressive, they weren't, you know, they weren't like hateful filled. They were just like, hey, can we have another meeting with, you know, they were going to come and in and, and, and seeming peace. Hey, Commander, you know, we did want to hear what he had to say. You know, that last meeting didn't go so well. You know, kind of ended with, you know, all the religious groups fighting. And so this would have been just what the commander would have wanted to hear. So golden plan, as far as the commander was concerned, it was just a golden idea. Uh, The Roman commander would have bit 100%, right? On the Jewish religious leader's end, Remember, they wanted Paul dead also. So getting them to go to the commander with this golden scheme was really a thousand percent was was a thousand percent win, huge win for them as well too. A brilliant plan so far, really. Even though it's an evil one, it's brilliant. Sadly, uh, unfortunately, the devil is very wise, and of course, we know that the devil is the one that wanted Paul dead. And of course, you know, we know that the devil's brilliant as he's been around since the beginning. Anyway, um, how would they work out these 40 nuts? How would they work out their stupid, nutty plan? Well, they had it all worked out to, for their end too as golden. For you see, once the Roman commander played into their evil scheme against Paul, and once he put him on the transport, and once he you know, sent them off down to the council to go ahead and have this meeting. Of course, they would just hide in a conspicuous spot, you know, or an inconspicuous spot, I should say, and where they couldn't be seen until, of course, the caravan that was taking Paul probably would have just had a couple few soldiers, you know, and then they were they had 40-plus people, of course. So 40-plus people could easily overpower two or three soldiers because, of course, the Romans didn't, wouldn't have thought there was any danger. Hey, they just want to inquire them again. We're just going to go. Maybe there might have been a, a dozen you know, possibly, but again, still, 40 people are going to be able to outweigh a, a dozen. They would have had weapons, the Jews would have. And, but of course, they probably wouldn't have even had to fight the Romans as they would have, as the Romans were coming, they were just going to stay hidden along a certain path. They probably had the path all scoped out. And of course, at the very last moment, when it was just the perfect time, they were going to all jump out and instead of yelling surprise, just go right for Paul for a knife to his throat. So really, a, a brilliant Paul. They would have killed him, really, without too much altercation from the Romans. Now, unfortunately, they still would have been guilty of killing a man, and the Romans might have executed them, but they all might have also probably had covers on their heads. They might have just ran away, too, and Romans would have been so surprised. They might have just even tried to kill the Romans as well, too. So anyway, brilliant plan by these 40-plus nuts. Too bad it was for an evil purpose. Everybody would win except for Paul, of course. So now that they had, they thought a 100% foolproof plan against Paul, it might have succeeded, except that these Jews didn't account for just one humongous unknown factor. What was that unknown factor? They couldn't have planned for this unknown huge factor because they didn't know him, right? That unknown factor was Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember the lion's words to Paul in Acts 23, 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, 
For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. What did Jesus just do there? Jesus just gave Paul a guarantee. <laughs> hey, just like you did here for me in Jerusalem, you're going to Rome. And, and what, what does that mean? What does that mean when the lion says something will happen? Well, when the lion says something will happen, it's going to happen. Jesus Christ said the end's coming, and God said here's how the end's going to play out, and here's all the things that are going to happen, and guess what? He's going to make them happen. <laughs> when God says something's going to happen, it doesn't matter what anyone, whether whether man or woman or angel or demon or fallen spiritual host of wickedness or the devil, it doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter because nobody's going to stop what God says is going to happen. Paul was headed to Rome, and no matter how good or great any seemingly foolproof evil scheme was by any anyone, he was going to Rome. That's it. That's just it. And so they didn't realize that they just really weren't against Paul. They were going against Christ's words and his guarantee that Paul was going to make it. And Paul knew it. So, of course, you know, Paul, if he trusted, if he was trusted in the Lord, wouldn't have been scared of it either. Bible says of God Almighty, who is, of course, one with Jesus Christ, Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. You see, as God determines, whatever that determination may be, so it shall come to be. And then he says, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Meaning, whatever Jesus Christ, whatever God Almighty determines, it will be done not a hundred percent, not a thousand percent, not a million percent, infinity percent. That's just, just hands down. Now, sadly, on the flip side, what that meant for our 40 plus nuts here, foolish nuts, I should say, was that they were really already as good as dead before they even made the vow because they would never kill Paul considering their vow. They would never eat nor drink again. And nobody can go without eating and drinking for more than just, a, you know, even at the most a few weeks right? And remember, they would have had to keep their vow 1,000% because that's how important Jews kept their vows. And especially, as I've already pointed out, they already then exposed their vow. They didn't even keep it secret with just their small group. They exposed their vow to the highest Jewish authority in the land, which kind of put an absolute seal on their vow. On, on their vow. How Paul was going to Rome because Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, had said so. And of course, we know now, history tells us, that Paul was going to live for about three to five more years. Uh, and common sense sadly tells us that shortly there, uh, after this account and after he makes it, because we're going to see in this account that he makes it, that there's going to be 40 plus funerals because the 40 plus nuts plans would be foiled. That's, of course, part of the title, foiled plans. Now look at Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, how he foils their foolproof plan. Look at verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So Paul had a nephew, which means that he had a sister, because that's what Scripture said, because the Bible just told us so. And as God would have it, of course, because we know this was God had have it, because we know that Christ said, you're going, so he was going. 
His nephew hears of their evil scheme of these 40-plus Jewish nuts, and must and he must care about Paul because after he hears of their plan, he goes right into Paul and he tells him what he heard. Now, he must have heard this plot in like a Jewish circle somewhere, which means that either A, he was still an unconverted Jew, would still love Paul because he was, you know, his uncle, or he God had him there as an undercover Christian. But either way, Paul has, or God has Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time to hear of the plot against Paul so that God can foil their plans against Paul. Look at how God begins to foil the 40 nuts plans against Paul. Verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man uh, to the commander for he has something to tell him. God shows Paul exactly what to do with the information. He says, hey, get it to the commander. He's the man that can change What's going to happen? They're going to come to the commander. They're going to ask the commander. You go to the commander, tell the commander, hey, this is what's going to happen. And, and, you know, of course, if Paul was trusted in Christ here, which I'm sure he was, he knew that God would make sure he would make the commander do what was right so that Paul made it to Rome and that they he wouldn't be taken out, out before that. Now, Paul here says, if you look at that verse, That's not the way the centurion hears it. That's pretty funny because God was intervening here. Paul called, read verse 17 again. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. That's not a question. That's not a a plea. That wasn't a, hey, um, can you please take this guy to the commander? He, uh, He needs to tell him something, please. Can you do that for me, please? No, this was a command. Take this young man to the, sent, to, the, to the commander, and he's got something to tell him. Uh, Paul knows who's in charge, and he also knows that since Jesus Christ said, hey, you're going to go to Rome, that he was a man of his word, and he was going to go to his Rome. And the centurion, well, he, verse 18 through 20, look at how he interpreted what Paul said. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me, to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. It's interesting how as God's intervening here, the centurion heard Paul say, ask a question, while we what we read from Paul was, Paul commanded. But again, uh, the centurion probably wouldn't, if, it, if there was no divine intervention here, the centurion would have, well, you don't tell me what to do, dude. What do you... You're, the, you're our prisoner. You don't tell me what to do. But of course, that's how he heard him. And so he does what he says, and he brings him to the commander. Look at how the commander attends to Paul's nephew. I mean, now this is just a regular kid, or a regular young man, a regular man. He, he's nobody special, he, you know, that he should get an audience with the commander. But yet, verse 19, then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, uh, what is it that you have to tell me? Uh, this is wonderful because the commander takes him seriously, and he takes him alone in private by the hand, leading me to believe, maybe just speculatory, but it's not salvific, that this was a young man. It wasn't a, maybe he was a young teenager, because I just can't see a commander grabbing the hand of a 40-year-old man and going, oh, come on, come with me into the private. I just don't see that. I see men to men, he would have been like, hey, man, come on, follow me. But this guy, he takes him by the hand, and then he brings him privately, and he wants to know what he has to say, which is, again, amazing that uh, just a standard young man could get the audience of the com- of a commander of the Roman army. But again, God is intervening here for Paul. Verse 20, 
And so he wants to know what he said. Verse 20, the kid tells him. Verse 20. And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. There's their perfect plan. But do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them, here's our 40 plus Jews, lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. He transmits, he transmits this terrible news of these 40 plus nuts plan against Paul really well. But really, he also gives the commander pretty important, invaluable, really, intel to the commander. But how does he respond? Rather, how does God cause him to respond, considering that he will have his way with Paul, and Paul will go to Rome? Look at verses 22 through 24. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you revealed these things to me. Golden right? Young men, (laughs) I love young men, I love old men, I love middle-aged men, but you know, young men, they can have a tendency not to keep their mouths shut. They have a tendency not to keep secrets very well. So the commander here stresses to him, tell no one that you've told me these things, because guess what? Loose lips sink ships, and if the Romans were, or if if the 40 plus nuts here would have learned that the commander got wind of their plan, then of course they wouldn't, you know, they would have done something different there. They would have, they might've come to the jail earlier. And, you know, when they knew that the security in their jail was a little down, a little low, and they would have, you know, maybe tried to come and attack Paul before. Cause you know, again, their lives are on the line. So again, here, he said to tell the commander that, uh, that, that, that they wanted to have an appearance with Paul that didn't necessarily have to be that day or the next day. The commander may have been busy. That may have been a few days. But it says there in that verse, or in, I'm sorry, in the verses before, that they were already waiting for Paul. They were already kind of in hiding, which means that they were really serious about getting to Paul. They weren't going to just wait until the moment of. They were going to hide in ambush and, and wait, hiding, starting then. Because they knew if they didn't kill Paul, <laughs> they were dead. Of course, they were really serious. So, of course, the, the, the commander knows, doesn't want to let their plan, you know, his, his plan that he, he learned out and escape. So what does he do? He says, hey, shut up. Don't say nothing. Verse 23. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare, listen to this. Listen to this royal treatment that Paul gets here. Prepare 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was a town that was kind of, you know, a a good distance away from Jerusalem. Caesarea wasn't just, you know, a mile away, right? And he says, do it at the third hour of the night. Now, the study of Roman time was the most confusing one as I went online and Man, everybody had kind of some answers, and then some people had the same answers. It was kind of really confusing. But what I gathered, if I'm wrong, please email me, uh, shoot me a text, send me an email. All my contact info is on our website. But from what I gathered, the Roman third hour of the night would have been around 3 a.m. So the commander here grants more than enough protection to take Paul out of Jerusalem, considering that there were only 40-plus nuts. So 40-plus may have been 40, maybe 50, maybe 60 even, right? And then he, what he does, he sends him away at around 3 a.m. in the morning. Why was all this necessary and important? Well, 40-plus Jews were no match 
think of this, for 470 soldiers in total. Think, 470 soldiers for one man against maybe 50 or 60 people, Jews. These Jews probably weren't trained in war as the Romans were. So this was like a flea trying to go against, you know, like a lion, right? I mean, the flea might get a couple bites in, but the lion's going to be unaffected by one flea to the point where it was going to really hurt him too much, right? 40 plus Jews, 50 or 60 up against 470 soldiers, 200 armed with spears. That's what our scripture just told us. 70 on horses. They would have had weapons too. And another 200 soldiers that would have been armed as well as soldiers were armed, right? And, And the time was important as well because how many people would be expecting the commander to send Paul out of, out of Jerusalem? Because he wasn't supposed to be sending him out of Jerusalem. He was supposed to be sending him down to the council, which was a place that was kind of near their barracks. So, of course, this wouldn't have been out of Jerusalem. So he sends him out of Jerusalem at 3 a.m. in the morning. Gives him his transport in the middle, practically, of the night, right? Not too many people are going to do that. Not too many people are going to expect that. People are asleep at 3 a.m. Nobody traveled at this hour. Prisoners especially weren't exported at this hour. And of course, as it turns out, of course, we know God divine anyway, but none of the Jewish leadership nor the 40 plus nuts with their evil scheme against Paul expected it because Scripture tells us, as we keep going on, that Paul makes it safely to Caesarea. Of course, God had uh, Paul covered, just as he told him in verse 11. Look at the precious Paul and his transportation. Look at verse 34. He says this, And also provide mounts to set Paul on. Now, until this study, I had never really looked up that word. I was thinking mounts. Usually they, they, they kept prisoners in like a cage when they traveled or... Usually they might have like a little wagon and they would be chained up in the wagon to the wagon or they would be chained up and walking, right? So the chains, the soldier would have the chains and the chains would go down to the prisoner and then the prisoner would walk along as the the soldier who was on a horse because of course the soldier's not going to walk, you know, I think it might have been 100 miles to Caesarea. I'm not sure on that, but it might have been even 100 miles. The soldier's not going to walk 100 miles. They're going to give a beast a burden to walk 100 miles. They're not going to make the soldier walk, okay? And, And normally the prisoner basically had like no control. So when it says here, that he provided mounts to set Paul on. When you look at the word in the Greek, it means a beast of burden. So they actually gave Paul his own beast of burden to ride on. Now that's awesome because normally a prisoner wouldn't get this. Just use logic. What might a prisoner do had he gotten a beast of burden to ride on of his very own? Even if, let's say, he was chained up on it. Well, of course, he could try to make a break, right? Take his beast of burden and rile him up and kick him in the side and try to ride off. And of course, even if the soldier had him in chains, if the soldier was caught unawares or or by surprise, the soldier would have just been, you know, yanked off. And then, of course, he wasn't, he didn't have shackles around his arms, shackle to shackle. So, of course, the soldier would let him go and the prisoner might escape. Yet... With Paul, God gave him grace in the commander's eyes, and because he did, the commander gave Paul the royal 
treatment, right? Giving him an animal to ride on. And I, we don't even know here that Paul was actually in chains. Look at the rest of verse 24. And, and he says, and he makes an emphasis and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And that would have been in Caesarea. So get Paul to Felix, the governor. And, and, and the Roman commander says, and do it discreetly, 3 a.m. in the morning. Do it with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and, and overkill uh, of security. I mean, really, 40, 50, 60 Jews, maybe even with weapons, 100 soldiers, maybe 200 soldiers would have really been overkill. 470 was like over, 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 over kill for one man against 40 to 60 Jews who maybe had a knife, maybe had some swords, you know, maybe had some rope. Over, 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 over kill. So with tons of security. And he said, and do it in comfort, give him a beast of burden to sit on, and do it super safely. And these were the orders of the commander, God's awesome provision for his suffering messenger who had been through a lot for Jesus Christ, because Paul had. Now, now I do believe, since Paul had been through a lot, remember, you know, we keep talking about it, Acts 23, 11, you know, Paul was down and out, Christ comes to him, you know, be of good cheer, cheer up, Paul, it's okay, I'm here, I'm with you. And, and I believe from that point on, Christ didn't just stop there with his encouragement to Paul. I believe that Christ allowed and made the commander do all these good things for Paul because he just wanted to show Paul, hey, it's just the Savior saying, I still love you, man. I got you. And you know what? I'm going to make sure and what? Look, stand back. Stand back, open your eyes, and just watch my provision. I've got you, my son. I've got you. Jesus Christ is so good to help and encourage his servants and God's children. Jesus Christ is better than anyone deserves. He may have had some kids walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as he still does today, but he, his promises to them as they do are awesome. Psalm 23, 4-6. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, David says. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So even though we're walking through the valley of shadow death, those that God gives the road of suffering to, he comforts us. His knowledge that he's with us is there with him. He says here, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? I shall eat and I will see all my enemies not prevail against me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, which means that even though I'm walking through bad times, even though Paul was walking through bad times, God made his cup run over and that would be a running over with goodness, a running over with joy, a running over with love, a running over with hope. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow. Paul's royal treatment from Jesus Christ through the commander didn't stop with how the commander told his centurions, his soldiers, to transport him out of Jerusalem, though. He also writes a very impressive letter on Paul's behalf to the governor, Felix in Caesarea, verses 27 through 30. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, that was the name of the commander of the Roman army. I mean, I maybe should have looked it up. It's okay. But that's the fellow's official name, Claudius Lysias. He says here, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Of course, he was the governor of Caesarea. And of course, you know, to the most excellent governor. He's, of course, you know, flattering him. It's a, it's a way that they kind of wrote their letters and, and just some flatter and just some kindness and just some, you know, some praise. Greetings. Hello. Hey, you know, it's me. Hey, you know, they must have known one another. 
Verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. He's kind of recounting the things that Paul had gone through, right? He, he, he remembers them going and he remembers them getting there and seeing them beating Paul, trying to kill him. Coming with the troops, he says, he reminds me, tells him what happened. I rescued him. He was like the, the knight in shining armor that rode in to rescue Paul, right? Having learned that he was a Roman, remember Acts 22, 25 through 28, they're about to flog him. The commander orders his flogging. We want to learn the truth, and he's going to tell us, uh, he's going to tell us something, whether he likes it or not, because I know he's guilty. And so Acts 22, 25 through 28, remember Paul says, is it, is it lawful to, uh, to do these things to a Roman citizen? Of course, he learns he was a Roman. Verse 28, and when I had wanted to know the reason why they accused him, I brought him before their council. This would be that that. Tr- that we read about where Paul, we learned that Paul had a, had a partial disability and a partial blindness. He couldn't see real well. So this is that trial he's talking about. Verse 29, I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but it had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. What did that mean? That's probably the most important thing that he just told Felix. He just said he's innocent. I don't need to hold him. Nobody needs to hold him. He's innocent. They had some questions against him of things that he did wrong for their Jewish, you know, their religion. But as far as the Romans are concerned, he has broken no laws, Felix. He is innocent. So verse 30, he carries on, kind of finishes. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, this whole plot that we're talking about today, the this, 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 plan that was that's God's foiling, right? He, he says, I sent him to you immediately and also commanded his accusers to stand before you or to state before you the charges against him. And I told, I told, hey, I sent him to you. And then you remember the, the, the 40 plus nuts said we're going to send uh, somebody from the Jewish council, a Jewish leader, uh, the high priest maybe, or a, a high priest. There were a few of them. He was going to, they were going to ask and they were going to send. So now by now they would have come to the commander and said, Hey, this is what we want. Maybe they even might have done it before Paul's nephew got there. Hey, hey, here's what we want you to do. Hey, here's our scheme. And of course, they might have already come to uh, Mr. Lysias, right? And they might have already made their request. But instead, he was like, hey, you know what? I, I sent him to Felix. He's there already. And so go there and you got to talk to him there. So, of course, pretty powerful letter for a prisoner that was being sent to another ruler. The result, and of course the end verses of our message today, we're not quite done, uh, verses 31 through 35, then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which was a city situated between Joppa and Caesarea. It was probably halfway. And he says, verse 32, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him. And that would be, you see there, after the immediate danger, the 40 plus was gone. They were way outside of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the people that were had taken the vow, there was no more threat or danger from them. Uh, they took the last half of the journey without uh, part of their brigade. It says there that they left the horsemen behind. And it says then there, verse 32, they returned to the barracks. Uh, so that means that they, again, left them behind and then just kind of carried on without the 470 full squad that they were taking Paul with. Verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So they got him there safely. As I said earlier, God, Christ promised, hey, you're going to Rome. I, I, there's, this, there's this threat. Paul sees this threat. 
he, he gets these words from Christ, you're going to Rome. He says, man, I'm going to Rome, nothing they can do. And now he is there safe with Felix. And, and it even gets a little bit better, verse 34. And when the governor had read it, which be the letter, he asked which province he was from. And when he had understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium or to be kept safe in the praetorium. That was Herod's headquarters. Uh, basically, what would be the headquarters of the governor, uh, of like the king of the province, that would have been one of the most highly guarded and, and most safe, most safest places in all the city. And Felix said that Paul would stay there under the safety of this ultra-guarded, you know, palace or, or office or building or whatever it was, the, these headquarters of Herod's, and that Paul was going to stay there, which would have made him even extra safe as this would have been, you know, he would have been locked inside and, you know, lots of guards around, lots of safety, lots of protection for Paul. But for now, Paul is safe and in Caesarea, which again is a city far from Jerusalem. Claudius, the Roman commander, gave Paul the royal treatment and how he transported him to Caesarea, to Felix the governor, and the 40-plus Jewish nuts that were scheming to kill him have lost and they will never get a chance to kill him again because Paul is safely in Felix's hands, in a safe house, and will continue safely to Rome under the guard of a soldier as he will shortly appeal for his, or to Caesar for this trial that's kind of been ongoing. You know, this whole ordeal is all kind of over. God knows how to take care of his children doesn't he? (laughs) Absolutely. Paul may have been on the road of suffering and walking through the valley of death for the Lord Jesus Christ, but God was with him every step of the way, as Psalm 23 showed us, and Paul was a walking, literal walking testimony of this. Now, that's all I have as far as the teaching on the verses of our study go, as far as the most obvious reading of them would go. So I mean, those were the basic things. We saw those things. We learned an awesome lesson. God provides, takes care of those that he, uh, that, he, that, he, that he loves, those that are his. We also know once God makes a word, you know, whatever he says stands. Uh, and that may, I and I would have to admit, we made pretty darn good time to get through all the verses that we had, considering, again, like I said earlier, it took me over an hour last week just to teach one verse. I got through a lot. It's kind of funny how God does that. But We're not done yet because God has a reason why we kind of went through those verses so quickly. He has something else for me to talk to you about today as far as the one of the less obvious ideas of the section that we read over goes. I mean, it was there. I kind of talked on it, but now we're going to talk about what it means kind of to the nth. The nth means that you take an idea all the way to the very end thought. Like you continue to think about that idea all the way till. You know, there's really nothing else to think about as far as it could go. A little something more God wants you to take home or, or into your hearts from this message. A, a huge question in this section begs an answer. A huge question. If Paul was innocent, verse 29, the Roman commander Claudius Lysias admits to Felix the governor that he learned that Paul was innocent... Why didn't Claudius not just secretly release him into a remote part of Jerusalem? 
Or, or why didn't he just uh, take him to one of the towns that were around Jerusalem? R remember, in the past, we had seen Paul flee from persecutors kind of on his own, where he wasn't the Roman you know, guards, the Roman commanders, Roman soldiers weren't involved. He kind of ran from his persecutors. God told him, get out. So he went out, and that's what he did. So why didn't Claudius Lysias, after Paul was innocent, just release him into a safe place? I mean, if he really cared for him, he, again, he releases him to a safe place, right? By all human logic, that's exactly what should have happened. Well, why? That question begs. I keep going back. Acts 23.11 again. Just as the last part, though, Jesus Christ said, Remember, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And, 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 we can't forget, remember Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. And, 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 remember, that means that whenever God or Jesus Christ says something will happen, then it'll happen. And nothing and nobody, whether Paul or any man or any woman or any child or any angel or spiritual host of wickedness at all put together, including the prince of darkness, Satan himself, can change that. No matter what they might want, no matter how much they might try to stop. Meaning that if God Almighty wanted to, he could either let things happen or stop them, cause things to happen or not, even make people do certain things, just like God caused the Roman commander to give Paul the royal treatment and transportation out of Jerusalem unto Caesarea to be with Felix the governor, but didn't release him even though he was innocent. Just like how God did not allow the evil scheme of the 40-plus Jewish nuts to succeed against Paul, even though it was a humanly perfect plan. I mean, you couldn't set up a plan like this in your own human design any better than this. I mean, this was perfect, right? But if Jesus Christ says that something will or won't happen or makes someone do something or stops them from doing something, then it will come to pass or it will cease. Whatever. Whatever God says, that's what happens. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot to take in when you take it to the nth. It's an unavoidable issue in this section that we read over, including verse 11 from last week. It's not just one that, are, that we can throw away either. It, it's one that's in our face, and it's obvious. God showed it to me. Uh, you may have not seen it, but it is there, and it's an unavoidable issue. You see, it also begs the question, does God make everybody do everything and is he like a big puppet master in the sky and he's got his strings and he, he's got his strings on every one of us and we're doing exactly what he wants and we're doing this and we're doing that because you see God's word says that he's sovereign and that word sovereign means that he is ultimately in control of everything that happens on earth or that he could influence everything and everyone on earth for his will and his purpose. Uh, and it means that, but we need to be careful at how we look at God's sovereignty. Because if we look at it in the wrong way, and in an unbiblical way, it seems as if mankind are just simply stupid robots, 
and we do whatever he wants us to do, and he controls everything that we do. And I'm talking about everything we do, and of course, taking it out to the nth, that would be men raping babies, raping women, sex trafficking, people murdering babies, you know, America's killed more than 6 million people in, in abortion, Muslims beheading Christians, and you know, the list can go on and on and on and on and on about the evil that mankind can do to one another. And of course, this thinking of God controlling everything we do, making us do even whatever, all the evil things, like nothing, like nobody does anything apart from what God made them do, is a dangerous thinking because we know that the Bible says that God is light and God is love and he's not darkness. And of course, we know that the murder of innocent babies by abortion and, and raping babies and all these other evil things, human trafficking, sex trafficking, we know that's not, those aren't good things. We know those aren't light. We know those aren't love. And we know those aren't from God. And, we look at, and when we look at scriptures like we did today in depth, it may seem as if God controls everything mankind does and that we are just senseless robots, but it's not exactly like that. It's really not like that at all. Actually, the Bible says that God gives mankind free will in regards to most all the ways in which we want to live in morality and ethically and whether or not we choose to follow him in Christ or whether we reject him in Christ. The only areas of our lives, Scripture says, that we see God doesn't give us our free will, it was where he has a specific purpose or plan that he's working on to happen. And that's what we see biblically, just like what we see with Paul and the 40 Jewish knots that were trying to kill him and with the Roman commander and all that we read today. I don't believe biblically that mankind has 100% what they call autonomous free will, meaning that we, we can do whatever we want aside from him, and we go where we want and do whatever we want. And, no matter, and you know what? There, God doesn't have any control, and God doesn't put his hands on us and make us do anything or lead us anywhere to do anything ever. I don't believe that. Like, you know, kind of we make our destinies apart from him kind of thing. But I do believe Scripture speaks that God does give us free will. I taught a sermon on this. I'll have a link in the, uh, in the sermon notes or in the overview that I'll have of this sermon on the website and on SoundCloud. Um, but it's called, Does Mankind Have Free Will? And I'll put a, again, I'll put a link in the, in the notes of this message. And it's a good message. And if you have any questions about this topic, you can definitely go to this sermon and it'll clear a lot of things up for you. But why would God have me bringing this up here at the end of this section, which again was the lesser idea and not the idea that was so easily seen about, you know, just God's provision for his child going to Jerusalem? Well, because it directly applies to us that are on earth today and all that will ever be alive on earth until the end of time, where we are or where we are not with Jesus Christ. We clearly see that we have free will in Acts 17. Now, I also talk about the same chapter in that sermon called, Does Mankind Have Free Will? But I'm not going to go through it that in depth here as we're almost out of time. But you, I will say I teach it more in depth in that message. So, But we're going to go through just some of Acts 17, uh, 22 verses 28, actually, just as a quick overcap. And we're going to see what exactly God gives us our free will in and what exactly God doesn't give us free will in. And then we're going to apply it to what we learned today, and we're going to apply it to our lives. Acts 17, if you want to turn there, you can, otherwise you can listen along. Verse 20 through, 22 through 28, the Bible says this. 
Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He was acknowledging how religious they were. Religious just means that they had a, a form of godliness or a good discipline of things to do, which is, you know, a lot of people are religious, but they're not, they don't have a relationship with God, but they're religious. Verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So they had worshipped thousands of gods, hundreds and thousands of gods, and but yet there was one there that said, To the unknown God, because they didn't worship the God of all creation. They didn't worship Jesus Christ, his messenger, either. Therefore, he says, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, right? I'm, I'm here to tell you about the one that you missed. You, you know he's there, but you don't know his name. I'm going to tell you. Verse 24, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Here's where it gets interesting. It's already been interesting for them, but here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has, listen, here's the no free will part, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Which means that if you live today, October 2018, whether you live in America, whether you live in Russia, whether you live in Albania, whether you live in the Pacific Ocean on an island, wherever, anywhere in the whole world that you live, that's where God appointed you to live. That's what that means, pretty much. And in this time as well, too. Just like I could say back, you know, 1950. Those who lived in all those places back in 1950, God appointed them to live that time in those places. We had no free will of that. that it got no free will on where we were born and no free will on what time we were born in. There's where we don't have free will, right? Of course, we weren't even born. How could anybody have free will anyway? But that free will is really unimportant as far as the scheme of our lives goes, as far as like us living out a life that God has given us. Here's where it gets important why God did these things. Why God made me and you and you know Jose and Susie and, and, and Barney and Bill and Joe all over the world. Here's how why he made us live in a certain time and in a certain place. Verse 27. Here's where we see our free will. So that they should seek the Lord. He wants us to seek for him. In the hope that they might grope for him and find him. You say, how do I see free will there? Well, you see, if God knows who's saved and who's not saved, and he's already pre-appointed everybody that's going to be saved to be saved, and pre-appointed everybody who's not going to be saved and not be saved, then why would it say there that he that they he put us in all these places and all these times so that we should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him? We might grope. You see, anytime the word that he might hope, that he's hoping, how can God hope for something that he already knows he's done, right? If God made the earth, he's not going to go, oh, I hope that I can make the earth. Oh, and he's already spent it 24,000 miles an hour you know, here and there. Oh, I hope that I can get it to spin 24,000 miles an hour. He's already done it. See, if somebody's saved or they're going to be saved, he doesn't have to hope for that. If you know that, that every Friday you get a paycheck 
and it's guaranteed because it's, you know, coming from a source that's got unlimited money and no danger to their well-being or their lives, you know that that check's going to be there already. You don't hope for it to come in. You expect it. You don't hope for it. See, see, there's our free will and that he puts us in all these places in these pre-appointed times so that he's hoping that we grope for him to find him. And then he goes on to say, though he's not far from each one of us, meaning that no matter whether you're uh, a million miles away from God and your belief in him or whether you are as close to him as Paul was, Paul just said to these heathens, God's not far from you. He's right there. He's, he's like, you could touch him practically. I mean, he's right there. It's not far from you, right? For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. How does this now apply to this huge, this, this huge purport, you know, proponent of making, uh, showing us that mankind has literal free will and not just the delusion of it? How does this apply to us that are listening to this message that are alive today considering the content that we study today? You have your free will to either choose Christ or reject Christ. God doesn't make you do that. You can either grope for Him and choose Him when He reveals Himself to you, or you cannot grope for Him and you can blow Him off. The question is this, are you standing with Christ and in His plan for your life to know Him personally, to live for Him, follow His ways and His teachings like Paul and I and the original apostles, minus Judas, of course, did and, and still are? Or are you like the 40-plus nuts who rejected Jesus Christ and lived a lifestyle of ways that were against His ways and working against Christ's plans? For you see, this whole interaction with Paul in Acts 17, he was talking to straight-up heathens that were a million miles away from God in their belief. So the Jews, they actually had a biblical belief of God, Jehovah of the Old Testament. They didn't accept the Christ of the, of the New Testament, but they, they believed and had faith in the God, Jehovah of the Old Testament. So they would have definitely been way farther ahead than these, than these people here in the Areopagus whom Paul was speaking to. So God was not far from them either, and God was hoping that these 40 nuts wrote for him too. But they didn't. They rejected Jesus Christ, and they rejected his messenger, Paul, right? You've got your free will in the areas that matter the most, your moral and ethical ways, and, and if you choose to follow or reject Jesus Christ, which is really all of life. Whatever I want to do as far as, like, if I want to live a, a drunkard, alcoholic, a, you know, prostitute, womanizer, whatever I want to live as, drug, drug addict, God says, man, I want you to grow for me. I'm, I'm hoping that you will. I put you in your right time, and I put you in the right place so that you would. But will you? Will you grow for me? Will you? Just like, just, like, just like Acts 17, just like we see in our lives. Who will we live for, us or Jesus Christ? Who are you choosing to live for? Jesus Christ said that if you choose to live for yourself in your sinful ways, and those ways ruled your life, then you reject him. But that is not what he wants, obviously. Because remember, I even prayed about him in the beginning. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Uh, Paul command, you know, you know, basically commands Timothy, hey, pray for all men, because God you know, wants, us, wants all men to be saved and, and to Timothy. 
And Acts 17, of course, you know, hoping that we would grow for him. He, he purposely put you in the location you live in, the time that you were born in. He purposely, I wouldn't even doubt, gave you the job that you had. He purposely, of course, I believe, probably led you to this message, to listen to this message, to hear me. Uh, you know, a, a nothing, nobody, but I just want to represent Jesus Christ. And he did all of this by his will, not giving you that part to choose. But he did it out of sheer love for you, desiring to have you to have a personal relationship with him now and eternal life with him forever. If you haven't chosen Jesus Christ, or if you have drifted away from that choice to follow and submit your life to him today, please repent. Have a change of heart towards God. He's nothing but love towards you, whoever you are that's out there whoever you are. And do what Christ says. Matthew 16, <laughs> decide to, Jesus, if anyone desires to follow to me, he must deny himself. The ultimate step of repentance in your heart. Make a heart decision to say, no more, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to turn to Christ. And I'm going to live for Christ. And he says, pick up your cross. And of course, make a decision to follow him today. And don't waste time. Don't waste another day. God loves you and he's waiting for you. He's right there, not far from you, as Paul told those in the Areopagus. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your undying love, your, your long-suffering love, God, toward us, not willing that any of us should perish. Thank you, Lord God, for all that we learned today. Lord, thank you that we learned of all your awesome provision and your awesomeness, Lord, toward those who are yours, Lord, those that are even on the road of suffering, as Paul was, Lord God, as you, as you take care of us, Lord. You know how to take care of us. Thank you so much. And Lord, thank you so much, Lord God, that the 40 Jewish nuts plans were foiled and that, Lord God, you gave Paul the royal treatment that you gave him. But Lord God, I, I just have a feeling, just know right now there's somebody out there that's listening to this message, Lord, that's rejecting you, either in the ways that they live whether they profess to know you or not, Lord, they don't live for you. Their heart is not in your hands. And so, Lord God, I pray, please show them, Lord God, that you're not far from them. Reveal that to them right now. Because that's what your word says, and you're a man of your word. Whatever you say goes, and that's just it. And if that's what you said, and that's what your messenger said about you, Lord, that's it. You're not far from every one of us. You're just hoping, Lord God, that we humble ourselves. Turn from ourselves as Lord and start groping for you. Start seeking you, Lord, to allow you to become the Lord of our lives, to allow you to give you the opportunity to come in and, and save us and cleanse us from all of our sins and make, you, make us new in Christ Jesus, Lord. We thank you and we love you and we praise you, Lord. And I do pray that you would save that person that's listening right now that's not yours, that's not submitted to you. Please turn their hearts to you. Help them come to repentance and to life in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, dear God. And I ask all these things and pray all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.